Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor of the podcast. Today we are discussing irreparable rotator cuff tears and superior capsule reconstruction of the shoulder. For this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Alex Weber, Assistant Professor of Clinical Orthopedic Surgery at Keck Medicine of USC and Team Physician for the USC Trojans and the LA Kings. Dr. Weber was an author on the recent infographic titled Superior Capsular Reconstruction of the Shoulder, which was published in the June 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Michael Epler, Iona Bolia, James Tibone, Seth Gamrat, George Hatch, Reza Omid, and senior author Frank Petrogliano. Alex, congratulations on your work and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much and happy to be here. I'd like to start with a little background to set the stage for our discussion of the SCR. Can you describe for us the pathology involved with the irreparable rotator cuff tear and explain to us how that contributes to disability for so many patients and the challenges involved with its overall treatment? Sure. That's a fantastic question. I'd say that, um, you know, for us that uh, there are a number of factors that lead to irreparable rotator cuff tears. Not all are uh, the extra large in variety or the, the massive uh, tear, although massive tears can be the irreparable type. Uh, typically, when we're talking about irreparable tears, we're talking about large to massive tears or tears with uh, significant uh, fat infiltration and atrophy. This uh, patient population is challenging because when they lose uh, uh, the superior rotator cuff uh, or the depressor of the humeral head, which keeps the glenohumeral joint uh, in its appropriate alignment, they lose the force couple of uh, of the anterior cuff and the posterior cuff, and it makes it very hard uh, to be functional uh, with your shoulder uh, when that's the case. Can you review for us the theory behind how and why this technique, the superior capsule reconstruction, might help to address that pathology you just described? Sure. Uh, so uh, the work was really done by Dr. Taboni and Dr. Mahata, uh, who first described the superior capsule reconstruction. Uh, but they found that uh, uh, better than uh, just uh, placing a patch in between the tendon and the uh, footprint on the humeral side, that uh, placing or anchoring a graft, which uh, both anchored on the uh, glenoid as well as on the humeral side, was uh, better at uh, restoring the anatomic position or depressing the head into the concavity of the glenoid uh, to then allow uh, the force couples uh, as well as the deltoid uh, to help uh, power the arm. So the infographic simply lists irreparable rotator cuff tears as the indication for this procedure. I'm hoping we could dive a little deeper into that. Can you review for us in a little more detail how you go about your patient selection for this procedure? What factors have been identified to potentially be of any prognostic benefit? So uh, certainly the irreparable rotator cuff is a broad uh, descriptor of the patients who are uh, best fit for this procedure. Uh, We're really talking about uh, patients who uh, have uh, uh, pseudoparalysis of the arm, uh, but the ability to uh, activate somewhat, as well as uh, typically those who are motivated uh, to undergo surgery, uh, go through a rehab, uh, to really uh, get back to activity or have function overhead. If it's purely pain relief that patients are interested in, uh, this may not be the best procedure for them. Uh, we're really uh, focusing in or narrowing in on 
younger male or younger female who's had either one or two uh, failed rotator cuff repairs, uh, who's still active and wants to be functional, uh, these patients uh, seem to do best with uh, superior capsular reconstruction. Now, you mentioned the age and the activity level in your selection. Um, with respect to glenohumeral joint arthritis, there's some overlap between the candidacy for patients for an FCR versus those who are candidates for a reverse total shoulder. How do you make that distinction in your workup? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think that uh, for patients who uh, have uh, some glenohumeral arthritis uh, or rotator cuff arthropathy with glenohumeral arthritis, uh, we really tend to at least encourage those patients to consider a reverse shoulder replacement. Uh, if they're uh, younger and active and understand the risks of undergoing an arthroscopic procedure rather than a reverse shoulder replacement, and all the risks have been discussed with the patient, the need for additional procedures, uh, continued pain, uh, then uh, they may be candidates uh, for a superior capsular reconstruction or a debridement or a partial repair. However, uh, typically when uh, patient age is increased and there's uh, advanced uh, changes in the joint, uh, then we'll start considering reverse shoulder replacement. Sure. So I wanted to go into some of the maybe technical pearls, uh, surgical tips and tricks, if you will, um, on how to do sure. an SCR. Speaking just kind of maybe rapid fire on your thoughts on uh, different topics of controversy, are you doing these in the lateral or the beach chair position? So I, I, I do rotator cuff work uh, in the beach chair position. I found uh, ergonomically, I think that's best for the surgeon. Uh, as well as uh, for orientation uh, when teaching the procedure uh, seems to be uh, best in the beach chair position. I know that's a, a typically an East Coast, West Coast debate in terms of where you trained, East Coast being more beach chair, West Coast being more uh, lateral. And so uh, I, I, tend, I tend to fall into the East Coast camp. Type so, of graft. Are you using uh, autographed, allograft? I'm using allograft, uh, a dermal graft. You know, obviously, thicker is better. You know, I do think that there's uh, some significant uh, comorbidity of harvesting a graft from a patient. Um, so I think allograft is graft of choice. Arm position during fixation and tensioning. Uh, where are you putting the arm uh, when you're fixing and tensioning the graft? So I, I tend to have the arm by the side, a little bit of forward elevation and a little bit of external rotation. However, I, I don't believe, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there's ever been a study which has, uh, has demonstrated that uh, there's an appropriate or, or definitive uh, position for arm uh, when tensioning the graph. Agreed. We don't have any level one data uh, on outcomes comparing arm position. I agree with you. That's why I kind of posed the question, because I think there is a lot of variability in this, um, you know, I learned by watching Dr. Burkhart, who, you know, tends to have, you know, the slight forward elevation, slight abduction, kind of 20-20 position. But I know folks have been described, you know, abducting the arm anywhere from full adduction all the way out to 45 degrees of abduction. Um, and I yeah. think the graft choice also plays some into that as well. Human dermal allograft tends to have some flexibility to it. So you can probably Absolutely. put it in under some tension. And then when you adduct the arm, it'll still have some give. I don't know if that's been your experience Absolutely. as well. 
Absolutely. I think that, uh, and just from playing with these graphs in the lab as well as in the operating room, there's definitely some elasticity to it. Uh, so I think if if you put these graphs in under tension, uh, they will stretch somewhat over time. And probably a little bit of tension allows uh, the patient to move a little earlier uh, than if you're uh, concerned about your tension in the graph. Absolutely. And I think another pearl for, uh, you know, newer surgeons taking this on is to always check the tension by doing that reverse trampoline effect um, after your graft is fixed, you know, which I do under direct visualization, just to kind of make sure you're accomplishing the goal of what you described earlier of depressing the humeral head. Absolutely. Okay. Another topic of controversy, potentially, are you doing an acromioplasty along with this procedure? So I think that's a, a definitely a topic of controversy, and, and there's been some nice papers recently about uh, acromioplasty of rotator cuff repair and, and how it may or may not affect outcome. You know, I think in general, if uh, I have a superior capsular reconstruction patient, these tend not to be the first uh, procedures for that patient, um, and uh, there may have already been an acromioplasty performed. I think if there's a large downgoing uh, spike of bone or a type 3 acromion, uh, I'm inclined to uh, remove that. If um, the patient has not had a surgery before and there is not a large downgrowing acromion, I'm inclined to leave it alone, as uh, there has been some suggestion that the CA ligament is important in helping uh, to depress the humeral head. Sure, I agree with those uh, points as well. Uh, lastly, uh, marrow venting or microfracture with greater tuberosity footprint to augment any graft healing on the humeral side. Are you performing anything like that? Great question. I'm, um, I typically prepare the footprint like I would for a rotator cuff, and then I use that kind of bleeding bed as my uh, source or comfort level that there's going to be some healing or scarring uh, between uh, the compressed graft and uh, the humeral head. Sure. So overall, from a more conceptual standpoint, in your experience, what have you identified as some of the main limitations to the SCR, either with respect to the functional outcomes or with respect to potential future revision surgery options uh, in your patients? Sure. I just want to touch on one more technical thing that Dr. Taboni and I have been working on, which is um, we've modified the technique a little bit. We'll use three knotless anchors on the glenoid side. We'll, we'll plan where our anchors will go on the humeral side, but we won't place any anchors. So we'll shuttle those three uh, sutures from the glenoid side out. We'll pass them through the graft, and then we'll shuttle the graft in uh, with no anchors on the uh, humeral side. Uh, at that time, we've placed two kind of cinch stitches in the in the far lateral corners, anterior and posterior of the graft, almost like uh, like an uh, with strings on a kite. Those allow us to then take those cinch stitches out the lateral portal or two percutaneous lateral portals, and then guide the graft as we then do a speed bridge technique. So it, it eliminates the amount of suture that uh, you need to place uh, through the graft. And it, um, as you bring the graft in, which is often a, a very complicated step, uh, for, especially for beginners, to get uh, suture tangles, et cetera. So we'll uh, only have three sutures through the graft when it comes in. We'll cinch it 
down on the uh, glenoid side. And then you know, most surgeons now can do a speed bridge in a matter of minutes. So once the graft is in and you percutaneously bring your cinch stitches uh, anterior and posterior lateral out percutaneous uh, portals, you have a lot of control of the graft and then you just need to perform a simple speed bridge. Uh, and that side goes uh, much faster and quicker. So something to consider or for those doing these, maybe just get it uh, a cinch down on the glenoid side and then tackle the, the humeral side once the graft is in. Yeah, I think that's an excellent tip. The rat's nest that can ensue with so many sutures, I think typically when I'm yeah. doing these, I've got, I've got 12 to 16 sutures coming out, one cannula, which you yeah. know certainly raises the, uh, the pucker factor. But as you Absolutely. said, as long as you can manage the sutures, you can get it done. But agreed for, you know, surgeons tackling this procedure early on, your technique sounds like a, a simpler solution to keep straight, to keep things straight. Yeah, I think it's, it's worth a try. And, and we're in the process of sending it into uh, the techniques to hopefully be published with you guys in the near future. That's great. That's great. Um, so back to my original question about main limitations to the procedure. Yeah. Um, can yeah. you speak to that? So I, I think patient selection is a huge one. Uh, and then also uh, discussing expectations um, in terms of uh, both uh, range of motion and strength uh, are definitely a major factors. I think in, in terms of, you know, having conversations also about what to expect uh, function-wise, return to activity, uh, potentially continued pain, uh, but increased function, uh, I think is an important uh, topic of conversation. And then what do things look like when uh, this isn't providing a level of satisfaction to the patient? Um, and that's where uh, potentially uh, there's a role for uh, a balloon spacer and a conversation about a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Great. You touched on two lead-ins for my next two questions. Uh, the first was going to be regarding your recommendations for post-op management and then how you counsel these patients regarding their reasonable expectations and goals. Can you just speak to that briefly? So the, the first part of the question was uh, regarding managing patient expectations. You know, I, I think that conversation needs to be had. Uh, most of these patients are coming in as either tertiary referrals or having failed uh, a rotator cuff repair in the past. Uh, they know what the uh, rehab and recovery looks like typically. And I, we typically counsel them that it's not too dissimilar uh, from a rotator cuff repair. Um, I do allow these patients to move pretty early on. The first two weeks are typically in a sling. They can come out of the sling during the day um, uh, to do tabletop activities, so typing, flipping pages in a book, uh, feeding themselves, anything uh, with the arm at the side, um, which re requires internal rotation without uh, significant external rotation of the arm or forward elevation I allow them to do. Uh, after two weeks, we get them moving in physical therapy with an expectation of uh, range of motion uh, somewhere between uh, six and eight weeks. And then uh, once we're uh, greater than eight weeks out, we start light strengthening with an expectation of, you know, their full strength somewhere between four and a half and six months. Great. I think that's an excellent summary. 
and uh, in line with what most of us are doing. So a follow-on question that you alluded to earlier, um, what are you seeing on the horizon as far as potential improvements either to this procedure or to management of irreparable cuff tears in general? I heard you mention the balloon. I want to get your thoughts on on you know that in particular and then also some other stuff that might be out there. Yeah, so uh, you know I think there's a lot of interest in the balloon right now. Uh, the data from overseas, uh, from Europe and Israel, um, is pretty promising uh, out to, it seems like, five years or greater, um, despite the balloon uh, potentially, you know, resorbing uh, somewhere in the uh, 10, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe anywhere from uh, 10 to 18 months, um, there's a, a potential for the balloon to resolve or resorb. Um, so it seems um, that there's benefit far beyond that. We're not sure exactly why, um, but uh, there may be some retraining of the deltoid associated with that. Uh, there may be uh, some uh, scarring or healing effect that occurs when when the uh, uh, balloon spacer is there. Um, but it seems like there are some promising results out to five years or more. Um, obviously, we haven't seen that yet in the United States, but. Uh, those studies are underway. You know, I think the a balloon is appealing because uh, the surgery is uh, technically uh, much less sophisticated than superior capsular reconstruction. You know, whether uh, patients with the balloon will have the same level of function as a well-done superior capsular reconstruction, I think that uh, remains to be seen. Sure. Uh, I agree with you on those points as far as, uh, you know, the potential for expansion uh, into a new, uh, you know, surgical procedure uh, for the same patient population. What are your thoughts or experience with other SCR uh, variations, so to speak, the autograph biceps tendon graft technique that we've seen, um, and then other kind of augments for graft healing, biologics, and things like that? I think nothing, uh, at least in my hands, has replaced a well-done dermal allograft superior capsular reconstruction. I think that the idea of using the biceps tendon or folding it back and forth over top of the joint is an interesting one. Um, I personally don't have uh, much experience with it, uh, but uh, what I see in the literature seems to be a uh, that that may be a promising uh, technique. You know, I think uh, in terms of augmentation biologically, I think there's there's some uh, questions still in my mind as to uh, how much biologic incorporation there is with the SCR and whether uh, augmenting with things like a PRP or stem cells uh, move the needle. Sure, I agree. I think they're all uh, excellent questions that we as a profession, you know, continue to work at and our, our practice continues to evolve in this challenging population. Um, I think it's been a nice discussion and summary of the SCR uh, and your infographic somewhat speaks for itself with its clarity and its visuals. Um, are there Thank any you. other closing thoughts or comments or anything you wanted to, to speak to before we wrap this up? The only thing I would say is that, you know, and you really nicely hit the nail on the head with this, is that we spent a lot of time talking about patient selection and patient expectations, and I think that's really important because 
this is a challenging problem and a challenging patient population, and it's really important that uh, everyone's on the same page when you go into the operating room with the expectation of having a superior capsular reconstruction in terms of what that means uh, for function afterwards, pain relief, uh, and the longevity of, of that procedure making a meaningful change for that patient. So uh, I think those are really the keys for people using uh, this uh, procedure in their armamentarium for the irreparable rotator cuff. Great. I think that's an excellent note to end on. Uh, so, Alex, I want to congratulate you again and your co-authors on this important work, and thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with us today. Thanks very much. I appreciate being here and couldn't have done it without my co-authors, so thank you. Dr. Weber's infographic, titled Superior Capsular Reconstruction of the Shoulder, can be found in the June 2021 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time. <music>